It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW in Sitka. Today is Tuesday, May 4th. I'm Meredith Reddick with Raven News. Sitka's COVID alert level remains low, though cases increased over the last week. Six new coronavirus cases were reported between April 25 and May 1, according to city data. Their ages range widely from two patients between 10 and 19 to a patient in his 60s. Four of these patients are non-residents. Three cases are related to travel, one is tied to community spread, and one is secondary, meaning the patient had contact with another person who tested positive for the virus. Three of the patients were experiencing symptoms when they received testing last week. Since the start of the pandemic, Sitka has reported 365 coronavirus cases. As of Monday afternoon, six cases were considered active, according to city data. With nearly 70% of the eligible population at least partially vaccinated, Sitka is starting to come out of its long COVID hibernation. Summer is just around the corner, and plans are now forming for summer activities like outdoor concerts and Fourth of July events. When the Sitka Unified Command met last week, the group discussed recent and upcoming gatherings from graduations to lawn concerts. Fire Chief Craig Warren congratulated the staff at local high schools for holding carefully regulated proms last month without spurring COVID outbreaks. Sitka High School and Mount Edgecombe High School both had their prom on the same day. They both went off without a hitch. We saw lots of smiling kids on social media. We saw uh, prom the way it was supposed to be. Warren said the Sitka Historical Society has begun planning for the 4th of July, although it's not clear whether all of the traditional events would be included in this year's celebration. An art walk and outdoor concert series are planned for the first week of June. And with all the activity, Warren said he felt like things were starting to inch toward normal again. But he urged Sitkins to continue to be cautious, especially when traveling. We would have been here a lot sooner for longer if we did not have mostly travel-related cases. When we travel out of town, we become more dangerous to our community for, from the COVID infection. Please, every Sitkin needs to really think about what they're doing when they're traveling, who they're sitting with, who they're entertaining, and what level of protections do they have. Sitka remains at a low COVID alert level, but public health officials continue to encourage vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals to follow CDC guidelines. The law retroactively ratifies disaster extensions Dunleavy issued during the fall and winter, and it retroactively extended the disaster from mid-February through Friday. The new public health emergency gives legal support for the state to continue to receive funding from the federal government, including for the food aid provided to households in need. It also protects health care providers and state workers from legal liability from damages suffered by clients contracting COVID-19. Crum says ending the disaster declaration will give Alaskans a, quote, mental break. And he says the new law gives the state the tools it needs to maintain its public health response. The Sitka Assembly last week continued discussing the possible sale of the former Sitka Community Hospital property, but a key piece of information was still missing, just how much the property is worth. 
The Assembly scheduled the meeting to have an open discussion about the request for proposals the city will soon issue to seek bidders on the property. The hospital business was sold to Search in 2018 with a deal to lease the property to house long-term care. Search expressed interest in purchasing the building last fall, and this spring the Assembly directed City Administrator John Leach to draft an RFP, and last month held two town halls to hear public input on the possible property sale. Last week's conversation focused mostly on setting the scoring criteria within the document. Assembly members discussed everything from how much preference to give a lease offer over a sale offer to rights of first refusal if the property is sold again and whether to set a minimum bid. But without a property value assessment, member Tor Christensen said they couldn't make much progress on the RFP. I think we've gone as far as we can without the appraisal. I mean, honestly, depending on what the appraisal is, I could say I don't want to sell it. Uh, let's talk, let's call it search and see if they want to just extend their lease. Um, or maybe, you know, Hey, let's sell it as fast as we can, depending on what that is. And it's, they just, I just feel like we're working without enough information. City administrator, John Leach said the appraisal would be finished and available to assembly members within days. But once that figure is available, that doesn't mean the public will be privy to it. The hospital property value will likely only be discussed behind closed doors in an executive session. The Assembly will review the RFP at its regular meeting on May 11. An international human rights body has agreed to hear from Southeast Alaska tribes concerned about cross-border pollution. The tribes want more protection from British Columbia's mining sector, which is active in transboundary watersheds. Coast Alaska's Jacob Bresnik reports. A booming Canadian mining area known as the Golden Triangle is key to northwest British Columbia's economy. But Southeast Alaska tribes, fishermen, and other concerned citizens say while the Canadian mining sector enjoys all the economic benefits, those downstream bear much of the ecological risks. Efforts to elevate the issue to the international level have had some successes, and recently the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has agreed to investigate a petition filed by a coalition of 15 tribes. The Southeast Alaska Indigenous Transboundary Commission's Tis Peterman told Alaska lawmakers at an April 27th hearing that its most recent petition was submitted last summer. Which basically stated that the transboundary mining will have devastating effects on our way of life and downstream communities. The D.C.-based human rights body is an arm of the 35-member Organization of American States, of which Canada joined in 1990. Formal cross-border efforts at the state and provincial level have been in place since 2015, when both sides signed an agreement pledging cooperation on transboundary resources. But tribes have complained that progress has slowed, and there's been little to no consultation with tribes since the state's political transition following the election of Governor Mike Dunleavy. Ray Paddock of the Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska told lawmakers that tribes on both sides of the border have taken to doing their own environmental work, independent of state and provincial regulators. Our way of life depends upon our health of the transboundary waters, and it's important for Alaska tribes and B.C. First Nations to be fully engaged for true collaboration to exist. Commercial fishing groups have raised concerns about poor salmon returns in transboundary rivers, like the Taku and Stikine, which are some of the largest salmon-producing systems in the region. United Fishermen of Alaska's Francis Leach says salmon runs, particularly Chinook, have been falling off in transboundary watersheds. 
UFA is increasingly concerned with the potential impacts to fish habitat and water resources from at least 12 large-scale open pit and underground metal mines in British Columbia that are abandoned, permitted, or operating in the headwaters of transboundary rivers. But there was skepticism from at least one member of the House Fisheries Committee. I grew up in northern Minnesota and I used to swim in the tailings ponds. And look at me. That's Matt Sue, Republican Kevin McCabe, who asked why mining interests aren't more represented in transboundary discussions. It seems like we've heard from a whole bunch of fish people here today. Um, I'm concerned that there's no balance in this hearing today. The Dunleavy administration recently announced it had wrapped up its joint monitoring with BC after collecting two years of data. Both sides argued that in-stream surveys by the federal government, as well as samples being collected by tribes, made the state and provincial project duplicative. Chris Sargent of the Flathead Lake Biological Station has been tracking efforts to date. The university researcher told the House Fisheries Committee that key questions remained. Are the overall conditions of transboundary rivers changing over time? And how are polluting legacy mines, such as the long-closed Tulsaqua Chief, affecting the environment downstream? To date, no monitoring efforts in transboundary watersheds have been designed to answer both of these questions. Congress appropriated more than $3 million last year for renewed stream monitoring at border stream gauges operated by the U.S. Geological Survey. And a cross-border group of resource agency officials from both Alaska and B.C. continue to meet at least twice a year on transboundary issues. The tribe's human rights petition says upstream mine pollution from British Columbia could harm salmon and hooligan runs on the Taku, Stikine, and Unic watersheds. It asked the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights to hold a hearing and investigate these concerns. Now the Canadian government has up to four months to formally respond. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. The Alaska House of Representatives will take more time before beginning the final debate on its version of the state budget. House Speaker Louise Stutes deferred action on the budget Sunday after minority caucus Republicans protested not having dozens of their amendments heard. Early in a marathon day of floor sessions on Saturday, the Alaska House of Representatives rejected a proposal to pay PFDs of more than $3,000 this year. Big Lake Republican Representative Kevin McCabe proposed the budget amendment to pay dividends based on the formula in state law at an estimated cost of more than $2 billion. Anchorage Republican Representative Sarah Rasmussen tried to show what it would take to balance the state budget with full dividends without overdrawing from the permanent fund's earnings reserve. The full PFD amendment failed by an evenly split 20 to 20. Lawmakers did pass an amendment to the budget on Saturday that will require the legislature to open the Capitol building to the public on or before May 19th. The session must end by that date, according to the state constitution. I'm Meredith Reddick, and this has been Raven News.